Welcome to Christchurch Manchester Sermon Podcast. CCM is one church that meets every Sunday in various locations across Manchester. For more information about who we are or about our Sunday meetings, please visit www.christchurchmanchester.com. service we've been going through the book of Mark and you can find that about three quarters of the way through your bible it's one of um the the gospel books Um, and the book opens with John the Baptist preparing a way for Jesus the Messiah and that means the anointed one Um, and so now John is going to baptize Jesus at the beginning of his ministry And something significant happens in this story. We see all three members of the Trinity present. We see God, Jesus and the Holy Spirit. And we're going to focus on this pivotal moment in today's sermon. So let's read our passage. It's Mark chapter 1, verses 9 to 13, and it'll appear up on the screen as well. At that time, Jesus came from Nazareth in Galilee and was baptised by John in the Jordan. Just as Jesus was coming up out of the water, he saw heaven being torn open and the spirit descending on him like a dove. And a voice came from heaven, you are my son, whom I love, with you I am well pleased. At once the spirit sent him out into the wilderness and he was in the wilderness for 40 days being tempted by Satan. He was with the wild animals and angels attended him. So I'm just going to talk a bit about the Holy Spirit today Um, and then we're going to go back into a time of sung worship and there'll be some space for us to pray and reflect and welcome God's presence um, into this room. So Jesus' ministry begins with the Holy Spirit descending upon him at his baptism and the Holy Spirit fills and sustains him for the work that he had to do on the earth. So ministry means Jesus serving God and his people. The Bible calls Jesus a great high priest. And a priest's job was to be this divine representative, uh, like a bridge builder between humanity and God. The Holy Spirit is God's personal presence. Uh, We're going to learn a little bit of Hebrew today. The Hebrew word for um, the Holy Spirit or God's personal presence is ruach. And you've got to get a nice sort of back sound at the end of that word, which I love as a speech and language therapist. Um, So ruach can refer to a number of different things or ways of describing God's presence, including wind and breath. So everyone take a big breath in. Lovely. So you feel that air inside of you, the vitality or energy in your body that you get from breathing deeply. That's what this Hebrew word means, ruach. And this is the same word that's used throughout the Bible to describe God's personal presence. Just like wind and breath are invisible, God's spirit is invisible. Wind is powerful, isn't it? And so God's spirit is also powerful. And just as breath keeps us alive, so God's spirit sustains all life. The first time God's spirit appears in the Bible is on page one in Genesis 1. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. Now the earth was formless and empty. Darkness was over the surface of the deep and the spirit of God was hovering above the waters. And God said, let there be light. 
and there was light. Throughout the Bible, we see God's Ruach giving special power to people for specific tasks. The first person in the Bible this happens to is Joseph. God's spirit enables him to understand and interpret dreams. And then it happens to this guy named uh, Bezalel, and he's an artist. And um, God empowers him with wisdom and skills, and he's given this creative genius to make beautiful things in the tabernacle. And we also see God's Ruach in empowering a group of people called the prophets. They were able to see what's happening in history from God's point of view. The prophets saw that while God's Ruach, remember that's his personal presence, had created a really good world, humans had given in to evil. They unleashed chaos into the world through their injustice and sin. Prophets such as Isaiah and Ezekiel said uh, that the spirit would come just like in Genesis 1, but now it was going to transform human hearts to empower people to truly love God and others. So cue the story that we're looking at today. After many centuries, Jesus comes and we're told that he comes from Nazareth in Galilee and meets John the Baptist. In verse 10, it describes what happens when Jesus is baptised. In John 1, we're told specifically that John was baptising people with water. John is having the people pass through the water to renew their commitment to the God of Israel. And there are echoes of God rescuing his people through water throughout the Bible. Many, many years before this story we're looking at today, the Israelites, God's people, had wandered into the desert to go to the promised land. They spent the night at the Jordan River before entering the land. God brought them out of the wilderness and they crossed through the waters to the place that God had prepared for them. And as they passed through those waters, they repented of Israel's faithlessness and the covenantal compromise that they'd made. They were preparing to be the new Israel that God was going to form when the promised Messiah arrived. So as John was baptising people in that same place in the Jordan, it was another prophetic act. And he was ushering in the fulfilment of that promise that God would send an anointed one to restore and deliver his people. John now gets to baptise Jesus in the same way, bringing him into the waters of the Jordan. Just imagine what John might have been feeling. That prophecy was coming true, the one he'd grown up hearing about and was teaching. Now, we can look a bit earlier in um, the book of Mark and read a bit more about John. And he sounds quite wacky. He's wearing uh, like camel's hair for clothing. He's eating locusts. And so I wonder at this point if he was maybe feeling overjoyed, like, oh, this is actually coming true. Like all of these sacrifices I've made, you know, people who thought I was being a bit strange, like all of that was worth it. Verse one in our passage says that as Jesus comes up out of the water, heaven opens up. Or in some passages, um, if you maybe have a different translation of the Bible you're reading from, it would say the sky opens up. Tom Wright, a theologian, explains this verse because it's a bit difficult for us to imagine. Like, what is it, what's going on here? What does it look like for heaven to open up in front of Jesus? 
Well, Tom Wright says that it doesn't mean that Jesus saw this like tiny door ajar in the sky, you know, like in the Truman Show, if you've ever watched that, where it's like this tiny little door on the the fake sky. Um, Heaven in the Bible often means God's dimension um, beyond ordinary reality. It's more as though there was this like invisible curtain right in front of us and it was suddenly pulled back. So that instead of the trees and flowers and buildings, or in Jesus' case, the river and the desert and the crowds, um, he was standing in the presence of a different reality altogether. I think that's really profound. And actually, a large amount of our Christian faith is um, a matter of learning to live by this different reality, even if we can't see it right in front of us. Sometimes that curtain is drawn back just a little bit and we see or hear or experience what is really going on. Maybe in times of worship or meditation or different ways that you've experienced God's presence. But most of the time, we're walking by faith and not sight. We may not see, hear or feel what God is doing. That doesn't mean he isn't present or he isn't working. The Gospel of Mark is a really helpful book for us because um, it helps us see the whole life of Jesus. We'll be working through it in the morning service and you can read it for yourself. We can learn to see and hear God's presence just like Jesus did. We can hear God's heavenly voice guiding and comforting us. And we can read about the life of Jesus and let it change us and our outlook on the world. The Holy Spirit is God's gift to his people. Because the Spirit helps us to see the often hidden heavenly dimension of God's world. So heaven is torn open in front of Jesus and another thing happens. Verse 10 in our passage says that the Spirit descends on Jesus like a dove. Now, when I first read this passage preparing for this sermon, I thought I would absolutely hate it if a bird landed on me. Like, I'd be flapping around and it doesn't sound all that nice an experience. But when I kind of shook off that, like, human reaction and wasn't being quite so literal, I could see the beauty in that little phrase. Like a dove is pointing back to um, other parts of the Bible. So um, it's pointing back to the creation narrative where we're told that the spirit is hovering over the waters like a bird hovers. It also points back to another bit in Genesis where Noah has sent out a dove after God had flooded the earth. And that dove returned with an olive branch in its mouth. The dove and the olive branch tell Noah that a time of peace and deliverance has come. And this moment symbolised peace, calm and serenity for God's people. The dove imagery in the Bible uh, symbolises just that. It's a new start, new creation, new hopes, new expectations. And I think it's a really beautiful symbol of peace. Jesus' experience of the Holy Spirit. God's presence was one of profound transformation and deep peace. This story is saying that God's spirit is empowering Jesus to begin the new creation. And we later see this happening throughout his life. He heals people. He forgives sins. He has victory over death. He's creating life where there was once death. He's bringing light where there was once darkness. Sometimes I think we can be a bit fearful of talking about or being open to experiencing the spirit 
perhaps because we've got misconceptions about God's presence. And I want to acknowledge that there is a danger of hyping up what may be happening in church or a personal encounter, because we can't force God's presence to do something. God's spirit is already here with us because we're a group of believers and his spirit dwells inside each one of us. But as an act of obedience and expectation, we can invite him to come and fill us up again. And meeting with God might look different for each one of us. Sometimes you might be feeling really still and calm. Sometimes you might want to dance or jump or shout. For me, I often know that I'm experiencing God's presence when my hands get a bit shaky and clammy and like my heart's really beating and I know that I need to like pray or sing or do something in response. But I've also encountered God in really quiet, subtle ways, like having a deep sense of peace that it's right to say yes to a certain opportunity or maybe just knowing like God is close by when I felt anxious. For some people, experiencing the Holy Spirit might appear a bit more dramatic. It might be falling down in the spirit. It might be shouting or crying out, maybe because there's some pain that God wanted to release. And it's okay if we sometimes don't understand what God is doing in the person next to us. And it's okay if we're not feeling it. There's sometimes when I come into church and I'm loving worshipping and praising God, but maybe just not experiencing his presence all that much in like a really obvious way on that day. I think we also have to be mindful of the power dynamics in the room when we're maybe leading other people in worship or prayer or in small group or kind of praying with other um, believers that we don't want to manipulate or hype up a situation to try and get these kind of Holy Spirit vibes. Um, experiencing God's presence isn't something we can just achieve by having like a nice twinkly keyboard in the background or you know like particular lighting um, someone praying really loudly or acting really oddly the Holy Spirit is powerful and we acknowledge that and sometimes God will do things that we don't expect and seem out of the ordinary but meeting with God doesn't need to be intense and it doesn't need to be weird I think there's also a danger for us as Christians to underestimate how God wants to show up and the power in experiencing his presence. Meeting with the Holy Spirit isn't something that's exclusive to our worship times or when we're together on a Sunday. In Matthew 18, we're reminded that when two or more believers are gathered together in Jesus' name, he will be there in the midst of them. That was his promise to his disciples. God often speaks to us through the Bible and we've got that readily available maybe even on your phone and he speaks through his people. These are fairly normal everyday things that we have access to. So there's a supernatural ordinariness to God's ministry. We're instructed to spend time with people, to be the church, to read and speak the word, to extend hospitality and as we do so the spirit will work God's power for his ministry came from the filling of the Holy Spirit. And this is a model to us of how we can be spirit-filled humans. So fast forward a little bit to Jesus' crucifixion. We also see God's spirit at work. The earliest disciples of Jesus who saw him alive from the dead said that it was God's energising spirit that raised Jesus 
from the dead. So the spirit we're talking about today is that powerful. The testimony of the disciples was that it was that powerful. It could bring Jesus back to life. And when Jesus appears to his closest followers, he breathed on them and said, receive the Holy Spirit. And soon after that, the Spirit powerfully comes on his disciples and they become part of that new creation. They share the good news and learn how to live by the energy and influence of God's Spirit. In the Bible, we see how the Spirit of God was poured out on the church at Pentecost. And the Pentecost event is one of the most important events in the life of the church. It signifies the birth of the church and also reminds us that God works in and through our communities um, and that the Spirit wants to unify our communities. When we look at the story of Pentecost in Acts, we also see that the Spirit empowers us for speech. The silence, the confused, the marginalised and the broken find power through the Spirit to speak up as the disciples did. At Pentecost, the believers started to speak in different tongues and the other people present could hear God speaking through their own languages. And this points out to us that the gospel, the good news of Jesus, is for everyone, no matter our social or cultural context. The Spirit enabled the church to have visions of a new world order where God would reign, where there would be diversity, equality, justice and peace. And they went out with Jesus' teachings into different communities and grew the church. So the early church needed the Holy Spirit to do what they um, did and what we can read about in Acts and beyond. And if Jesus needed the Holy Spirit to fulfil the ministry he was called to, then how much more do we need to be filled with the Spirit for our own callings? for the things that God's asking us to do, um, for the aims of the church to see God's kingdom come in Manchester and beyond. And today I believe that the Holy Spirit is still hovering over dark places, wanting to bring light, just as in that creation story, pointing people back to Jesus, transforming and empowering them so that they can love God and others. And the Christian hope is that the Spirit is going to finish the job. The story of the Bible ends with a vision of a new humanity living in a new world that's just permeated, that's rich with God's love and life-giving Spirit. We don't need to do anything to earn having God's presence live within us. When we proclaim that Jesus is Lord and ask that we be filled with his Spirit, He wants to bring his love and life. He wants to give us the gift of his presence. Did you notice in our passage that even before Jesus had done anything, remember this is right at the start of the Gospel of Mark, that even before Jesus had done anything, God gave him the gift of the Spirit. And he also told him that he was pleased with him and loved him. Verse 11 says, you are my son whom I love. With you, I am well pleased. Or the Passion Translation puts it like this. You are my son, my cherished one, and my greatest delight is in you. A famous filmmaker once had a huge legal battle with his long-standing mentor and guide. 
And the younger man simply couldn't handle criticism and ended up rejecting the person who'd helped him so much. When it was all over, a close friend summed up the problem. It was all about an ungenerous father and a son looking for affirmation and love. We see this all the time in society and maybe even in our own lives. Many children grow up in our world who have never had a father or a parent say to them, whether that's in like their words, looks, hugs, you are my dear child, let alone I'm pleased with you. And in our Western culture, often parents might feel this in their hearts, but they're too embarrassed or they've not got that emotional maturity to show it and tell their children how delighted they are with them. Maybe some of us have experienced the complete opposite. We've experienced angry voices, bitter rejection, or a childhood that wasn't very nurturing. The whole gospel, the story of the good news of Jesus can be summed up like this. That when the living God looks at us, he says to us what he said to Jesus on the day of his baptism. You are my child. I love you and I take great joy in you. God sees us not as we are in ourselves, but as we are in Jesus Christ. When he looks at you, he sees his beloved son, Jesus, just like in that moment described in Mark. And this might seem crazy to us. We might not be able to fathom this kind of fatherly affection. If we've not experienced it from our earthly parents, or maybe we've had some adverse experiences as a child or even as an adult. But it's true. God looks at us and says, you are my dear, dear child. I'm delighted with you. Recently, I heard a quote and I wrote it down and put it up in my room to remind me of how God sees me. We are human beings and not human doings. Doing good works is great and we absolutely want to be helping people and telling people about Jesus and putting on events and running small groups. Um, All of that is good stuff. But let us not forget that even before Jesus did all the amazing things in his ministry, all the miracles and the healings, God told him that he saw him and he loved him and he was already so, so pleased with his son. So wherever you are at today... I want you to hear that, hear that you are loved as a human being who has been forgiven because of what Jesus did on the cross. God loves you even before you lift a finger. He sees you as his beloved child and wants his presence to be with you, to guide you and strengthen you. I just thought I'd share some ways that we might want to respond to this passage. We might want to just read it through again. And maybe in verse 11, you could put in your name and imagine God saying that to you. So, you know, Gabby, I love you. You are my child and I am pleased with you. Maybe just try doing that in your head and it might feel a bit uncomfortable, but that's what God truly wants to say to you. You might want to ask God to just give you a sense of peace, to experience what it was like for Jesus to have a dove descending upon him, to have that serenity and calm in God's presence. Maybe um, this is all a bit new to you and you've not experienced meeting with God. 
you can just ask a, a really simple request. You can just say, Holy Spirit, would you come? God, I want to meet with you.